welcome to the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven and I've got a brilliant guest today, Jenny Randall. Now Jenny's a social worker who's been a social worker for many, many years and she's now got herself involved in a particular project that is doing a lot of good and has got a lot of potential to it. Hello, welcome Jenny. Hello. So, look, tell us, would you tell us a little bit about this? Your, your whole working life, one of the major things that you were involved with were, were, was looked after children, and this particular project, this particular initiative, has actually got them well in mind as well. Could you give us a, an idea what it is, how it started, and then we'll take it from there? Okay. Well, as you rightly say, I've been a social worker a very long time, and sort of that's how this started. I suddenly realised I'd been in social work 50 years and I thought that probably needed something to mark the occasion so that was the first thought um, and then because I've been involved in folk music for a long long time I heard a song by a Suffolk singer-songwriter called Eric Sedge uh, on, on a new album and I was so taken with this song, a germ of an idea began to take root in my mind, which was, this was a song about, as it turns out, his adopted daughter and about the difficulties of, of, uh, of, of taking on a child who's had a very troubled childhood. Um, and I knew when I heard it exactly who this child was, and I'd met this child on many occasions. Oh, really? With oh, okay. um, and I thought, well, maybe we could do something with this. Maybe music is another way of getting a message out about the lives of children in care and the difficulties they face as they move on into adulthood and so on. So I talked to Eric and he said, yes, you can have the song to do something with. So I then looked around for some other songs and thought, this is it. I'll put a CD together that will both raise awareness and some money, hopefully, and for a charity. And so that was where it started. All right. What was the charity that you decided on in the end? So the charity I decided on in the end was the Reese Care Leavers Foundation. Mm -hmm. The reason I chose that was because they are one of the care leavers associations that work with adults. So there's no time scale on who they work with. And this is in recognition of the fact that care never leaves you. Mm -hmm. um, it affects their adult lives tremendously, uh, sometimes throughout the whole of their adult life. Um, and I, I have always felt that whilst we do some things right for looked after children up till they're 21 or now 25 in some cases, there is a big gap in recognising that these childhood issues, problems, memories, both of the birth family and the care experience, 
do carry on blighting lives well into adulthood. Okay. And so REIS are an organisation that will do that. So that was why I chose them. All right. Now, having just decided that, um, you obviously couldn't go forward with a one-song CD. No. Nope. So, um, quickly, but if you could just describe how you got other people onto it and, and what some of the names are that you've actually managed to get onto the well, CD. I started to look around for other songs that told a narrative. I They talk about the issues about leaving home, leaving uh, your family, not having a family, homelessness, uh, addiction, all of those kinds of issues. Um, and I listened to lots of music. And then I went to the artists concerned and explained the project and asked them if they would donate a track to my CD. And they were all absolutely wonderful. And I have some quite big names People like in the folk world, people like Ralph McTell, uh, Show of Hands. Um, Fairport uh, Convention. Fairport Convention are on there. They have a song called, written by Chris Leslie, called Our Town, which is a very sad little song, really, about a girl of 18 walking away from the places that she knows and, uh, and not looking back. Uh, Jez Lowe, Johnny Coppin, you know, lots of names from the folk world, Chris Wilde and Julie Matthews. Um, and they were all absolutely wonderful. Everybody has really supported this. Brilliant. I mean, I know a few of these names, and I'm not a, an absolute dyed-in-the-wool folk kind of uh, listener, but at the same time, these are all legends in the folk world, aren't they? They are, absolutely. Um and they, they've been absolutely wonderful. I mean, people like the Oyster Band are, are the very last track on the album um, because I wanted to put some really hopeful tracks, um, you know, that even though life can be extraordinarily difficult, that, that, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel and the Oysters allowed me to use their track as the last track. And indeed, I've used their quote on lots of publicity stuff. There'll be diamonds on the water and music in the air. So people have been very generous and very supportive. Okay. Now, I mean, I said earlier on in the introduction, I mean, it's well known that you've been given, as you said yourself, 50 years of pretty dedicated service. And it was only a few years ago that you actually um, received an award at the Social Worker of the Year Awards um, for a Lifetime Achievement. So, I mean, you are recognised well also within the profession. So, who's been listening, as far as, I, as far as you can gather, to this latest initiative of yours? I imagine quite a few people are taking on board what you're saying and doing and working with the Reese Centre. I, I, did I hear rightly that you're thinking of, or they're thinking of actually putting something together whether it's technological, whether it's an app, whether it's an actual kind of um, guide of some description for young people leaving care. Yes. I mean, one of the projects we have thought about is looking at um, adults, young adults and, and people who are care experienced being able to get hold of their records more easily and supporting them to do that so they can begin to put their history together and their past into some context. Um, 
So that's one of the projects we're doing. And and a, a, an ex-colleague of mine and friend of mine developed a, um, a cloud-based memory system um, for young people in care called I Life, My Life. Mm-hmm. And she struggled to get local authorities to take this on. But I think one of the things we're going to use the money from the CD for is to actually put that out via Reese so that um, we're both going to look at helping children, helping adults, young adults, get their history from the past, but in the next generation and future generations, being able to store their history more appropriately and more, uh, you know, so that they can access it throughout their entire lives. Mm. Like any child would from their extended family. Sorry? Like any child would from their extended family. Absolutely, yes. I mean, you know, they don't have the luxury of being able to go and ask mum, dad and auntie uh, what happened to other members of the family and get their story and their history. It's uh, it's not something that's available to them and we're not very good in the care system at actually keeping that for them. I, I mean, I, I, I've remembered kind of anecdotally um, s- stories that I've heard about how sometimes looked after children in other European countries, or several of the main, the big industrialized ones, are somehow or other better cared for long term somehow than the ones in the UK. Is that a fair assessment, would you say, from any experience or information you've had yourself? I would have said that's that may that, that's probably a fair access, uh, assessment. I don't have much experience of what happens in other countries. But I do think we still have a long way in this country to go in getting right uh, how we care for our children who are in public care. We've done a lot of work on getting the front end of the system right uh, in terms of the sort of rescue and the protection and so on. But we're still not very good at giving these children a, a good childhood which then leads on to them having a good adulthood. I'd like to get your take on something. A couple of podcasts ago, I um, was I, I kind of did an interview with the BBC, um, and I think it was Hereford and Worcester. And the, the, the story was that they were closing several of the residential units. And at the time, uh, people were saying, well, we're not, we're not closing it for any kind of austerity measures. We're closing it because we think it's a better thing to transfer, to try and get children placed with families. However, at the same time, obviously, there was a massive discussion about saving money as well. I mean, this is sort of seesawed for years, hasn't it? You know, residential yes. units versus fostering and so on. I mean... Have you got views on where we're at at the moment in terms of have we got the bright balance or are we still totally out of kilter? I think the balance has gone too far towards family-based care. Uh, I think there probably are a limited number of people within the community who will make good foster carers. Um And also, I think for a lot of children who have a family, they find it very difficult to settle into somebody else's family. And they would prefer the less intimate setting of a residential unit. 
So I think we need both. Um, I think the problem was that we had some very poor residential care at one point in time. We had a lot of inquiries in residential care and we rather threw the baby out with the bathwater and closed too much of it. I think that's a fair point. That, that, was, that was one of my memory as well, and therefore it sort of provoked these thoughts again when I heard what um, Herefordshire were doing. I think, I mean, ultimately, Jenny, come on, I'll give you a minute, right? Let, let's condense it down to a minute for now. Just give me your vision of what we should be doing in a, in a utopian world, if you like, for those that we have to look after in the public sector. <laughs> well, I do think we need a range of... of different facilities. I mean, as I've just said, we do need residential units and so on. I think the biggest thing is that we do need to actually give them some stability and consistency. I know there's been quite a lot of talk recently about lifelong relationships for young people in, who, who don't have their own families. And that's very difficult in the current system to see how that might practically work. Um, but I do think that consistency of relationships, consistency of social workers, um, can, uh, a better system to enable uh, just simple things like uh, like keeping their history, like not them not having to pay council tax when they get into their first flats for a while. Those kinds of supports that financially and emotionally you might expect from your own family. Um, I think there are a lot of small things that we could do to make uh, big changes, really. Okay. I mean, I, you, you, we've all heard along the way about how certain things are judged, how certain successes and failures of a young person in the looked, in, you know, looked after is actually judged things like academic achievement, things like, you know, as you just rightly said, what happens on, on leaving care is there are proper plans put together and proper support. But, I mean, ultimately, isn't it fair to say that any young person who comes into the, care, the public care system already has a challenge to their childhood? And in some cases, you know, they're, they're very traumatized. And therefore, you know, marking them up against sort of conventional kind of targets is a tricky business, isn't it? Oh, yes, of course it is, because, you know, they bring a whole, you know, they, we have we have two problems, don't we? We have what happened with their birth family, and we have then what the care system does to them once they come into care. Now, too often, it seems to me that the care system repeats the inconsistencies um, and some of the behaviours that chaotic families do. Hmm. Now, that can't be a good thing because we're just heaping trouble on trouble. So I think, although we can't change what's happened to them in, in their early lives, we can actually improve that. And I think one of the things we absolutely do not do is provide the sort of therapeutic services, and I mean that in a very general sense rather than um, specific one-to-one -one kinds of therapies. Um, we don't provide that sort of therapeutic environment in which they can come to terms with that past. 
so it all kind of moves on with them into their adult lives and gets acted out again in that scenario. Mm. Um, um, yeah, I get that. I do get that because, I mean, you're quite right putting your finger on the therapeutic stuff because if, would you agree, if, if they have been, say, for example, I don't know, victims of abuse or whatever, and, you know, we are now having to effect, put a metaphorical arm around them um, and get them into sort of a, a safe and, and comfortable family situation or a residential unit. The idea of professional psychotherapeutic intervention is just not available to so many because of the cost. And um, this is a national problem, isn't it? Yes, it is a national problem, but it's not, it, it, you know, there was a, we had a great tradition in this country at one time of therapeutic residential facilities that had a total therapeutic environment. And I think that had a lot to recommend it. And we have, we've lost sight of that. Um, you know, they've, they've struggled to survive. And I, I think we could learn a lot from that movement. You know, we're very good at reinventing the wheel and not looking back sometimes at the good things that we've slightly lost. Hmm. Um, well, I remember early days of practice placing a, a whole family into a therapeutic situation for nine months in which, you know, the, the parents, if they were lucky enough to be working, could go to work from there and the children could go to school from there. That if they had, a, a, say, for example, a local authority, a, a council house, um, that, that that was put on hold for them and well, for the length of time they were there. And each week there was kind of scheduled kind of um, individual and family therapeutic sessions to, to really try and give a comprehensive attack on the problems and the traumas of that family. And it really did work. But you're right, it was expensive. But I presume what you're saying is the same that I was thinking at the time. You've got to measure up what the what the costs in the future of a chaotic and damaged and broken family would be to the system as opposed to actually spending a bit up front. Yes, that's right. Because, I mean, the, the, the young people who, um, you, the young adults are very, who, who have left care and who are struggling in the adult world, are very heavy users of public services. Mm. Mm. You know, they, they, they are overrepresented in homelessness, mental health uh, uh, services, addiction services. Um, you know, they don't go to university. They're not working. You know, they have children who end up in care. They become huge users of public services, and I, I can't imagine that anybody's ever costed out one or two of the young people's lives that I, you know, that I know um, to see what it has cost the country, the public purse in their adult lives. I can't imagine, but it must be millions. Yeah. So actually, the input needs to be, as you rightly say, at the beginning, because these are these, you know, that they're they're. they're costly services that they're using. Preventative, that word again. Oh, know. yes, we mm. go with that circle again. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, tell me this. I mean, I'd like your take on it. I mean, because to be honest with you, we've also created more challenges sometimes for children who are being cared for. Uh, technologically, 
Um, with the absolute surge and the advent of uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, young people are perhaps the biggest consumers of, of social media. Um, pe young people who are placed in situations where the authorities deem that they really should, are at risk and the, the, the people who possibly abuse them really have got to be kept separate from them and they've got to be confidential and they've got to be, you know, in, if you like, not reachable by the people who hurt them. Yet, these young people want to, to have, an, if you like, a normal digital childhood. Uh, and so many now are possibly being traced by the most innocent kind of uh, exchanges on social media, which uh, identify them. Is, is that something you've got some views on? Um, I Well, I'm, I'm not in direct practice now, but um, I think like all of these things, what we have to do is we have to say, that is how it is. Mm. Um you know, social media can be a very positive thing. It, it can be a very negative thing. And for vulnerable young people, you know, there are additional negative elements to it. Um, but I think we have to work with it. And there is a, a bit of me that thinks, OK, I know that these young people may have been harmed by some of these families, but... At the end of the day, they are their families. And in their late teens and adulthoods, we know that they drift back to wanting to find out more about their families, wanting to be with them and so on. Mm. So sometimes I think we have to just find ways of almost letting it happen, but in a preventive, uh, a protective way. I think the more we try and stop it, the more we make it a forbidden fruit that they're going to um, be, you know, be determined to find a way through to some of these families or uh, relatives of theirs who might might be people that we wouldn't want them to be in contact with. Yeah. I mean, obviously, 16, 17, 18-year-olds and upwards, you know, I mean... Uh fully able to make their own minds up about things. Mm. But it is a balancing act, isn't it? Like it is a Like a lot in social work is, let's be honest. But I mean, having said that, Facebook, the social media, had, does have some real positives. I mean, I did a, a reunion some years ago for Children's Home that I ran, and what I discovered, that they had a kind of care family on Facebook, they were these were young people who'd lived together in their early teens who were actually talking to each other about their partners and their lives and their children and sadly their grandchildren now. But they had created a community through social media of their friends that they had met while they were in care. Now, that's the other side of it. That's a very positive use, it seems to me. Okay. of social media for these children. Well, I think that this is one of the things that certainly I've put a marker down in my mind of actually sort of trying to keep an eye on because, I mean, all the time there are advances, all the time let's hope that the big uh, platforms are actually getting better at protecting individuals 
But at the same time, as you say, there could be a lot of good that comes out. Yeah, I mean, it's one of these balancing things. I get it. Jenny, look, I want to make sure that people realize, going back to the beginning again, what the album is that's been produced, how people get it in order to support the initiative you've created. So give us some details. What's the album called? How could people get it? And, and, and you know, how can they actually go about helping what you're doing? The album is called Kinder Shores, which is actually taken from Eric Sedge's uh, song called She's the One. And it's taken from a line that says, set a course for Kinder Shores. Um, and it is £10 and it's available on Amazon. And it's available through Folk on the Pier website, which is www.folkonthepeer, all one word, dot org. You I'll, put, get, I'll put all of that on the text of this. Yeah, you can um, get podcast. more information about the project from www.kindashores.org. Um, we do have a new project coming up, which is um, at Sheringham Little Theatre. Sheringham Square, where is that? Sheringham is in North Norfolk. Because remember, we've got an international audience here as well as a UK audience. Yeah. So, okay. Well, hopefully this will reach other audiences in due course. I'm working with the youth theatre uh, director there, and, and we he is writing a piece uh, about the story, uh, a true story, of uh, a man's journey through care. This is a chap who's now 50-odd. And he's using that as the basis for this piece. And when it's written, the youth theatre in Sheringham are going to put on a production, the proceeds of which will go to Kinder Shores. Terrific. But, of course, we will have a piece that can be uh, taken elsewhere and can be reproduced. So, effectively, it will be a short play that will be able to go anywhere, hopefully, um, so that it will be used elsewhere. How can people keep an eye on that? They can keep an eye on that by looking on the Kinder Shores website. Okay, and that's www.kindershores.org. Yeah. Okay. Final one, Jenny, just quickly. Um, I heard a little whisper that you're writing a book. Ah, yes. <laughs> the book. <laughs> the book might be written one day when we've finished with plays and CDs and so on. Mm, what's it, it about briefly? What's it about? On. It trundles on. Um, it, it's about a children's home that I ran in the 80s, um, which did interestingly have a therapeutic intent and a therapeutic setup uh, called, well, it was 11A Corve Lane. Um, in Essex and it, it's about what happened there and the young people who lived there. Right. Okay, well, listen, we'll obviously keep an eye on that. I mean, we'll be in touch and um, you can tell me how that's developing as well. But as far as the, the CD is concerned, as far as the play is concerned, as far as the initiative is concerned and, and what's being done with the proceeds from it, um, I really will come back to you and we'll keep an up-to-date sort of thing. In the meantime, though, Jenny Randall, thank you ever so much for being on the podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you.